the all-sufficient, all-surpassing name of Jesus Christ. Uh, what a delight to sing his praises today. Uh, Pastor Chris, uh, as some of you know, is on vacation. Again, appreciate uh, the worship team uh, so much for their, their work in his absence. Um, he, uh, Pastor Chris and Amy and their family, they're at Disney, as some of you may know. Um, this has been a very uh, busy time for Chris and his family, ministry-wise, family-wise, so I'm really glad that he is able to get away and get a little bit of rest. I didn't realize, I have to be uh, candid with you, I didn't realize how big of Disney fans uh, Pastor Chris and Amy uh, are. They sent us a picture, sent me a picture from the theme park. I think we have that picture. Do we have that picture? Yeah, so I... Um, Looks like they may get a little hot in those outfits, but uh, I'm glad they're able to get away. We, we're going to miss them uh, while they're gone, but um, we continue to worship this morning. And speaking of continuing in worshiping as we respond to the Lord, um, next Sunday we have a few folks getting baptized. And if you haven't, if you haven't responded in this step of obedience to the Lord, uh, it's time to think seriously and pray about that, that God would give you some clarity as to maybe why you've been delaying or why you haven't been baptized. But next Sunday is an opportunity, and we'd love to get you on the schedule. If, you're, if you have questions or, or concerns or you'd like to know more about baptism, you can meet Pastor Adam at the front of the service at the end. Um, you can also email the church office at info at capshaw.org. You can get on the list there. We would love to, uh, to help shepherd you in this step of obedience uh, to the Lord following your profession of faith. So uh, please pray about that. We're in the eighth week of our study through 1 Timothy, and we're working our way through this book verse by verse, section by section. So if you have a Bible, would encourage you to turn there. And this is a series, now we're in a series I'm calling Isn't She Beautiful, which is a reference to, of course, the Bride of Christ. Uh, beautiful, yet imperfect. Glorious, and yet because the Bride of Christ is made up of people uh, flawed at the same time. This morning, we're in a pretty straightforward passage in terms of discerning its meaning. Uh, it's not terribly difficult to understand. It answers the question, who leads the church and what should those leaders be like? Um, but as we're going to discover, this passage really has much to say, not just to those who would be elders in training, but also to every single follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we take great comfort this morning in the fact that you never change. And we are all over the map with our emotions and our interests and our desires, and yet you are steadfast, immovable. You never change. You're not fickle. You don't waver. You don't, you're not capricious. You don't go back and forth. You are steady and faithful and holy and perfect and right. And Father, we praise you that we worship you, the only true God, this morning. And we thank you that we can come to you as the living God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, will you minister to us this morning by your Spirit? Uh, will you pour out your Spirit on us this morning so that we become more aware of, even at an experiential level, your goodness and your love and your majesty? Father, will you work among us through your word and by your spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. Have you ever felt like God was calling you to do something? And maybe you couldn't really get your mind around why, and you couldn't really understand it exactly, but you felt like God was calling you to do something. Maybe you were 
driving down the road and you saw someone stranded by their car and you thought that you felt God was really calling you to go and, and help that person. Or perhaps you felt God prompting you to give money to someone who, that you saw maybe standing on a corner, a homeless person. You just really felt like God was calling you to give of your own resources. Or maybe there's someone that you work with that you know that's really struggling and you've heard a little bit about their story. You don't know all of it, but, but you've really felt that God was calling you to, to say something to that person. There's, a, there's always a question surrounding those sorts of impulses. How do we know if it's God calling? How do we know if this is really God asking us to do something rather than just a notion that comes from our own mind? How do we know if this is really of the Lord or something that, uh, again, is part of our own imagination? How do we know it's the Lord calling and not maybe just an emotional response to a bad day? How do we know it's the Lord calling and it's, and, and it's not simply uh, you know, our own con personal conviction? How do we know it's the Lord calling, this sort of burning sensation we have to do something? How do we know it's the Lord calling and not simply um, a reaction to something we ate last night? How do we know if it's actually the Lord calling? I visited a church a couple of summers ago while on vacation, and at the end of the sermon, the pastor, who seemed to be very capable and, and caring, um, he had a long invitation that kind of went on and on, and at the end of which, he said, that uncomfortable feeling you have inside your gut right now, that's not your stomach churning, that's Jesus. He said, he's calling you to do something. But to be honest with you, I wasn't really that sure. I was kind of hungry. So I wasn't sure if it was God. If it, I didn't know what was going on. It's how do we know if, if this is of the Lord? And to complicate matters, how do we know if the Lord is calling, if he's asking us to do something, presumably that will cause us to reorient our priorities? Maybe give up something, sacrifice something in order to serve the church. This morning we're going to consider... I'm not going to answer all the questions I pose, but we're going to consider this idea of a divine call to serve the church as a pastor elder. How do we know if God's calling you to serve the church as a pastor elder? Now, last week we saw that God's design for the church is that it would be led by men who are called by God, who are identified by existing elders, and who are affirmed by the church. So the church, the New Testament assumes the church will be led by a plurality of elders, men who are called by God, again, who are identified by the other elders and affirmed by the church. But how does a person know if God's calling him? This morning, we're going to look at three aspects of a divine call, particularly as it relates to shepherding the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let me start just by reading verse 1. The text reads this way. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So immediately we see the first aspect of divine calling, the call to serve the church as a pastor elder, and that's this desire. That's the first aspect. It's so simple, but it's so critical. It's a very different sort of desire. It's not a desire to purchase something from a store. It's not a desire to go on vacation. It's so much more than a desire to watch something on TV or have a certain meal. It's much more powerful than that. And what's fascinating is this is the only time that Paul uses this Greek word epithume in a positive way. In fact, every other time it's used by the apostle, it's used in a negative way to describe something that's evil or, or lustful. For example, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 1, 6, uh, 6, 9, rather, people who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation. That same word and concept. Flee youthful desires, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will, not, they will listen only to what suits their own desires. These are negative desires, but not in 1 Timothy 3. This is a positive twist on an otherwise negative emotion. Why is it normally negative? Because this sort of desire, it kind of grabs a hold of a person's heart and it won't let go. And if you, you, you can relate to struggling with sinful desires, you know sometimes there's that there's that longing and that temptation, and it seems so unrelenting. You don't want to do something, but the desire is there, and it's just weighing on you. Well, this is a desire that weighs, only it's a positive desire. It's unrelenting. It won't let up. It lasts over a period of time. But what is it a desire to do? Well, it's not a desire to hold a particular office in a church or to be called by a certain title. It's more about function than it is position. This is why the text says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The task is what he desires. And that task is to serve the church by leading people into the fullness of Jesus Christ. The task is to know, as we talked about last week, to know and to lead and to feed and protect the church under the chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ. When I was wrestling with what I believe to call to be pastoral ministry, this is back in the summer of 1997, uh, Janine was so instrumental in encouraging me and helping me think through this process. I, I was at a very busy time. We were at a very busy time in terms of a family. Uh, Janine was expecting our first child. Um, she was still working almost full-time at that point in, in, in cardiac uh, recovery. Um, I was a sports reporter for CNN. I was covering the Bengals and the Reds, and at that point the Reds were were struggling to make the playoffs, and uh, the Bengals had just started their, their OTA, their organized team activities, and they were trying to determine a starting quarterback between Jeff Blake and Neil O'Donnell. So I was either at the, the stadium or I was at the, uh, the football field just about every day, every day. I was in this, again, career-wise, I was really in the thick of things, but I couldn't shake this unyielding long, longing to serve the church and to help people experience freedom in Christ, help people experience transformation by the power of the gospel. And so the more that I got involved in church, I started serving, serving in a ministry with, with uh, young men. I started discipling other folks and, and doing some teaching as I was afforded the opportunity. And the more that I started discipling, the more that I started to study theology, this burden just weighed more heavily on me. It wasn't letting up at all. And even though ultimately when football season would come around, I was watching the Bengals from the field, and, which is a, a, a crazy thing to be on the field with these incredible athletes. And I was following the Reds and I was interviewing that. But, but what really made my heart move and sing was just being involved in the church and being involved in discipling people. My desire was for something other than. I still love sports. But the burning desire in my heart was for something other than that. My, my desire was for the task of serving the church as a leader, as a pastor, elder. The word for pastor, elder, words for pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, the words that are used interchangeably in the scriptures. First Timothy, uh, later on in chapter 5, Paul calls overseers elders. The Apostle Paul captures the weight of this task when he says to the elders at the same church a few years later, and this is in the book of Acts, he says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is ultimately led by Jesus. He is the the senior pastor, so to speak. But as we await his return, Christ has appointed men under shepherds to lead the church. It's a joy, but it's a weighty joy. The desire to serve the church in this way is a weighty matter because when one does it, one realizes very quickly who is able to do these things. I got a call about five years ago at a little after midnight from a fellow elder. Speaking of elders, this was a guy who got a hold of me and it's about 1230 and I answered my phone and he said, hey, the police are trying to get a hold of you. And I said, well, really, what's, what's going on? I said, well, there's a lady in the church who just had the unthinkable happen to her and she wants you to come and, and see her. And so I got in my car. By the time I got there, it was about 1 a.m. I drove up to this lady's house. She's out in the front yard. It's dark. In the middle of the night, probably. She's out in the front yard just screaming. Before I got there, she's just wailing. I don't know if she, I couldn't tell if she was screaming at God. She was screaming. As I talked to her, I realized what, what had gone on. Her husband uh, was walking from his vehicle. He pulled into a gas station. Was walking from his vehicle to the convenience store. And in between... He was hit by a semi-truck and killed. This was a lady who was 39 years old, two young children. And, I, and I'm standing there, and I, I'm being very candid with you. I had no idea. I mean, wh- what, what to say? What could, I, what could I possibly say? What words could I possibly come up with that are going to actually help this woman in her time of need? She found out only about 75 minutes ago that her husband had been killed, hit by a semi-truck. I didn't know what to say. At that moment, I'm thinking, who in the world is capable or qualified for such a task? I put my arm around her. It seemed like an hour. It was probably 20 minutes, and she just crumbled, just sobbing, face turned inside. I didn't say anything. I just stood there. Finally, I was able to pray with her and try to provide some words of encouragement, but it's a weighty matter to shepherd and lead and to serve the church. It's deeply rewarding but it's a, it's a grave responsibility. And there are men in this church that I believe God is calling to serve in this way, in the role that the, of pastor, elder. Now, the calling is not just for vocational pastors. It's not just for pastors who are paid. It's for those that God calls to serve the church as pastor elders. As many of you know, we're, we're making a transition over the next few months to an elder-led governance in keeping with what we believe is the New Testament model. And the men whom we call to be elders, those that God has given the desire, these men will be pastors. They're not going to be second-tier pastors. They're not going to be the B team. These will be pastors in the church. Now, they'll be doing other things for a living. They'll be paid to do other things. But these will be pastors in the church, pastor elders. Now, if you want to know more about this transition on Wednesday night, so just a few days from now, we're having, we have our, every Wednesday night, we have our adult service, our Capshaw Connect, and this coming Wednesday, uh, we're going to devote that time to talking about elders and elder transition. We're going to make sure that we open it up for ample uh, time for questions and answers. The calling starts with a desire, but it doesn't end there. Look at verses 2 through 7. Therefore, an overseer, again, a word used interchangeably, pastor, elder, bishop, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, 
not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought of, thought, must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So, in those verses I just read, Paul gives a list of more than a dozen characteristics of anyone who would, des- who would desire to serve as a pastor elder, anyone who would be affirmed in this way by the congregation. Those characteristics or qualifications make up the next, next aspect of divine calling, and that is character. So the first, the first aspect is desire, which is, which is subjective. It's internal. God places that in someone. You can't go to a person and say, you have the desire. Only a person can say that. But the next aspect is character, which is actually objective. It is verified, so to speak, affirmed by the church. Now, let's look at these really quickly. The first one, an elder must be, an overseer must be above reproach. This is a, this is a catch-all phrase sort of an umbrella characteristic. An elder must be recognized as a person of integrity, not a sinless person, not a person who lacks sinful tendencies or sin tendencies, or else everyone would be disqualified. But there's nothing about this person, there's nothing that anyone has on him, so to speak, that would put a dark spot on the reputation of the church in the name of Christ. He has a reputation that is a credit to the church. He's known as a person of integrity. The next qualification in verse 2 is a husband, the husband of one wife. Now, this is a difficult phrase. It's fairly idiomatic in the Greek language. It's, an, an idiom just means a, a phrase that we use casually that, for example, my, my daughter works at Dairy Queen, and, uh, and sometimes I'll tell people, oh, she works at the Dairy Queen that's just down the street from us. It's not really just down the street from us. You've got to make about 10 turns to get there. It's not down the street but it's only about a mile or so, and so I say she works down the street. That's called an idiom. Well, this, this word, this, uh, the husband of one wife, is, a, is an idiom in the Greek. It's perhaps best translated a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, given the context here, the rampant sexual immorality in the, in the Greco-Roman world at the time, and the way this is used elsewhere, I think it's clear that Paul's emphasizing that an elder must be faithful to his wife in both his actions and his attitudes. This being said, this does not eliminate all those who are single, nor those who have been divorced. A person can be a one-woman man and have a divorce on his record. Perhaps he was abandoned by an unbelieving wife. Perhaps his wife left him for another man. You can, be, you can have a divorce on your record and still be a one-woman man. Now, on the flip side, a person can be married, get this, a person can be married to the same woman for 50 years and still not be a one-woman man. This is the type of man who looks at women in a certain way, makes suggestive comments, is flirtatious, winks with the eye, so to speak, to use biblical language. Or as some women would describe it, in a very technical term, he's creepy. This is the guy who's creepy. This is the guy who, when, when a woman, he's around a woman, she feels like, you know, I don't know if I can put my finger on it. I don't know, but I, it just doesn't feel right. I don't, I don't like the things he says to me. 
I don't feel comfortable with the way he talks to me. A person can have been married for decades and still be a person who has a wandering eye, who disrespects other women, and is therefore disqualified as an elder. This man, the man called to serve as elder, if this person is married, he lives a faithful married life in a culture where, just like the first century, promiscuity and infidelity were commonplace. Now, the next, the next three qualifications, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, have to do with an elder's self-discipline. Uh, he must be a man that keeps a level head, not given to impetuosity, not a man who makes rash decisions, who just flies off of the handle, to a person who demonstrates self-control. And elders also, the next one, called to be hospitable. This phrase uh, means that an elder must be the type of person who loves strangers, welcomes other people into his home. He can be an extrovert or an introvert. That's not the issue. The issue is not how he, or he is energized, but the issue is he cannot be a person who keeps others out of his home, cannot be a recluse, so to speak. The next qualification is able to teach, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. After that, we have not a drunkard. Drunkenness was, uh, drunkenness rather, was a, a common vice in antiquity. Uh, and the man who would lead the church as an elder must not be given to drunkenness. Now, this doesn't mean, this does not mean that an elder can never enjoy alcohol in moderation. In fact, in 1 Timothy, this same letter, uh, Paul will tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. And if someone has told you that that was actually grape juice, you can talk to me after the service and we'll, we'll dive into that a little deeper. It wasn't grape juice, okay? It doesn't mean that a person has to, who's an elder has to be a teetotaler, so to speak. In fact, uh, the psalmist says this about God in Psalm 104, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. The issue is not alcohol per se, but the immoderate consumption thereof, drunkenness. Some people say, well, we, we should hold leaders to a higher standard. Okay, I can accept that. But what's a higher standard? Higher than God's standard? That doesn't make sense, does it? The, the elder cannot be a person who is given to drunkenness. Uh, look at the next three. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. The false teachers in Ephesus were, were tearing the church apart with their violent opinions. They were the folks who were, you dare not disagree with them because they would absolutely cut you down and they would belittle you. Well, you don't, you don't have the insight into knowledge that I have. And so what Paul says here to Timothy is that an elder must not be like that. Clearly willing to stand up for what's right, but here's the deal, not one who reduces Christianity to winning an argument. You ever met anyone like that before? For them, you, you get the sense as you talk with them that really the, the, the bottom line for, for them is they just want to beat everybody in their arguments. They just want to win arguments. This is not the way that an elder leads. This is not the character of an elder. Not a lover of money next. How many men have been disqualified for pastoral ministry from eldership based on this requirement alone? An elder must not be driven by the pursuit of money. Now, the next phrase, I want to look at it again because it's been hotly debated for centuries, verses 4 and 5. Uh, it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
The point here is not that an elder rules his family with an iron fist. The point here is not an elder must have all believing children who are believing while they're in the home. Only God can save someone. We don't have the ability, regardless of how good or bad we may be as a parent, to actually change someone's heart. The point is that the elder invests in his children and his family spiritually, emotionally, relationally, ethically. He disciplines them, but in love. He encourages them. He speaks to them about spiritual things. Spiritual conversations are a regular part of the elder's home. He doesn't exasperate his children with what Peter Wagner calls unreasonably harsh demands, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging, and condemnation. To say that he manages his own home is to say that he does not relegate the responsibility to lead and nurture his family to his children or to his wife. Now, thankfully for me, this doesn't mean that the elder's children have to be perfect. I have four kids that are wonderful. They are the delights of my soul. I love being around my kids, but they're far from perfect. They're not even close to perfect. In fact, they have many of the same sin tendencies that their dad has. This is the reality. I watch my kids do things, and almost all their annoying characteristics come from me, not their mom. They're from me. I see, you know, I see them do something that really annoys me. I say, you know, that's, that's exactly the way I would have done it. It doesn't mean that the kids have to be perfect, but they should be characterized by obedience because, we're told, if the man cannot lead his own home well, that is to say, if he relegates responsibility to lead his home to his children or his wife, how could he possibly lead in a church of hundreds of people? If he, if he just mails in the leadership, how could he possibly be trusted to lead in God's church? Now look at the next phrase, verses 6 and 7 again. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The danger of anointing a new believer into the role of elder is he might become puffed up and and revel in the position, and revel in the God-given weight of it all, and really rest then in the the praise of the commendation of people rather than his acceptance in Christ. And the devil, as we talked about last week, wants nothing more than to destroy the church by starting with her leaders. Starting with her leaders. Must be well thought of by outsiders, which means, again, must have a, a, a good reputation. Not perfect, but must be known as a person of integrity. So many qualifications that, as you can see, it, it's It narrows the field. And those who fit the qualifications only do so by God's grace. Only do so by God's grace. Now, I want to look at the third characteristic, and it comes verse 2. He must be able to teach. Here's the final aspect of this divine calling. Number three, it's giftedness. The elder must be gifted at teaching, able to teach. And so the first part is the desire, again, which is, which is internal and subjective. No one can tell another person you have the desire. But God implants that unyielding desire. And the second aspect is the character. Does this person fit the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3? And it's not as though the person just says, yes, I, I fit all those. Those have to be affirmed by 
vetted, so to speak, by the believing community, by the church. And finally, does this person have the, the ability to teach? Is he gifted? Now, this has been misunderstood and abused, so let me begin by telling you what it's not, what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that this man must be a dynamic public speaker. It doesn't mean this person has to be a captivating preacher. I've, I've been around fellow elders in other churches who were some who were remarkably skilled at explaining the scriptures, teaching the word. But I've, I remember one guy asked him just to do the benediction, which takes about 45 seconds. He turned that thing into a five-minute sort of ramble. I mean, anybody's, he was terribly embarrassed himself. When he got up in front, it just wasn't, his gift was not, he was not a public communicator. It doesn't mean you have to be a public communicator. It also doesn't mean you have to have a bigger-than-life personality. It doesn't have to be the person that everybody, you know, they know when that person enters the room because they're the loudest and the most brash. It doesn't mean that. In fact, that sometimes can work in the opposite of a humble servant leader. It doesn't mean the person has to be funny. It doesn't mean the person has to possess a seminary degree to be an elder. It doesn't mean the person has to know everything about the Bible. You know, sometimes I'll be in a group and they'll say, well, who was the second wife of so-and-so back in Judges? I'm like, I have no, I don't have, I couldn't even begin to guess. I mean, I know some Hebrew names. I could start throwing out some Hebrew names, but I'm probably not going to get it. person doesn't have to know everything about the Bible to be an elder. What then does it mean to be able to teach? Well, first of all, this person must deeply understand and believe the gospel. That's absolutely critical. person has to understand the gospel. And not just understand it on an intellectual level. This person has to give evidence that, that he actually believes the gospel. This is what he's resting in. This is what he's trusting in. This is where his hope is found. In Christ. In the gospel of Jesus. Secondly, this person must be able to accurately explain the scriptures in a way that point to Jesus. So this is what, you know, whenever I'm bogged down in sermon writing or in exegesis, bringing out the meaning of the text. I'm thinking, what, what's going to help here? What story? What? And I always come back to this, what someone said to me 20 years ago. Explain the text so that people will see Jesus. Explain the text. So there are times when, you know, as a preacher, as a writer, I have writer's block. And I'm sitting there and I may understand the meeting, but I don't know how to write or to communicate it. I just keep going back to this. Explain the text. Anybody can tell a story. Anybody can, if they work hard enough, can make a joke. Explain the text so the people will see Jesus. That's what it means to be able to teach. Accurately explain the scriptures. Now, remember, this list does not come to us in a vacuum. It's not like, um, it's not like just a list on Pinterest, right, that has no context. It comes in the context of a letter that was written by Paul to Timothy, and in, including the qualification able to teach, it was meant in part as a corrective to the false teachers at Ephesus who were leading people astray by teaching false doctrine. And what were they doing? Well, we know about the endless myths and genealogies. But one of the things they were doing, the most damaging thing they were doing is they were twisting the gospel. They were adding stipulations to the gospel. Things that had to be done, certain ways to eat or ways to live, relations with other people, things that had to be done in order for a person to be forgiven by God. They had perverted the gospel of grace. And this is what makes so many people who are not, this is why so many people are not able to teach, frankly. 
They make salvation about doing things rather than believing in what's already been done. They make salvation about something we have to do rather than receiving by faith God's great gift in Christ. Now that said, and considering Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, which we looked at about five or six weeks ago, I think one of the most significant elements to being able to teach is this, an ability to distinguish between law and gospel. This is absolutely central. And here's what I mean by that. In order for a person to be able to teach accurately, responsibly, clearly, he must be able to differentiate between what God demands and what God does. There's a big difference. God demands that we do things, and I'm never going to downplay those things, but that's different than what God does for us through the cross work of his son. This person must be able to differentiate, distinguish between what God demands and what God does, what God requires and what God provides. Very, very different. I taught uh, this class called Perspectives, which is a phenomenal um, 16-week course that we've had a history with here at Capshaw, and I'm thankful for those people here in our church who are organizing it and leading, and I taught lesson four a few weeks ago, and I was, I was walking out, someone asked me, and I wasn't really prepared for this, they said, what is the single uh, greatest thing you've learned as a Christian, or something like that? I was kind of taken aback by that, because I, I, I was done with my teaching, which lasted for two and a half hours or whatever, and so I thought about it for a minute, and my answer was this, that Christianity is not fundamentally what we are called to do, but fundamentally about what God has done for us in Jesus. Because that really changes everything. When we confuse the two, law and gospel, what God calls us to do, law is just a reference to all the commands of God, all the things we're supposed to do. When we confuse the two, law and gospel, we end up believing that we are declared righteous by God, welcomed into heaven because of what we do, what we can achieve and accomplish rather than by faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. One old-time theologian says this, the law shows us God's will and reveals our sin. The gospel proclaims our salvation in Christ. To confuse these two doctrines is to remain confused about ourselves and about our God. To misunderstand them is to misunderstand the reason for the incarnation the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we confuse them, when we start to believe, or, or, or God forbid, we start to teach that what, what we're saved by, what we're forgiven by, what we're reconciled to God by is what we can do, we end up losing the gospel altogether. We lose it all. Anytime you add anything to Jesus and his finished work for salvation, for justification, you lose the whole thing. 19th century theologian Carl F.W. Walther says this, when law and gospel are properly distinguished, the law is stern and rigorous, the gospel free and sweet. I love that. When the two are confused, an element of sternness is introduced into the gospel, making it demanding, or an element of laxity is introduced into the law, making it more attainable. Now, in case you're still not tracking with this, and I, this whole law gospel thing can be confusing, I want to I illustrate it by way of a video. Um, a little over a year ago, I think it was October, actually almost two years ago now, October 2016, uh, Ligonier Ministries, which is in Orlando, and Lifeway, which is the big Southern Baptist ministry, partnered 
with what they call, to produce what they call the state of theology in the church. It was mostly geared to the American church, but the state of theology. And here's a trailer video. Here's how they set up that study. Here's a trailer video for that study. So I don't know any of those people. I'm sure they're wonderful people. I don't know any of them personally. But I, and, and you know, you can tell there's some theological issues that run throughout, but there's a common denominator. And that is what they believe is that salvation is attainable if we only keep the rules. If we only do the best we can, do more good than bad, we only sort of live for God. But as you saw in each one of those, there's a sense of uncertainty, isn't there? There's a bit of anxiety. There's a bit of fear. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be in heaven. I, I don't know. That's, I, I have no idea how I could. And here's the deal. 
they have confused law and gospel. That's the problem. They've confused law and gospel. See, the law is what makes demands. And by law, again, I'm talking about the commands in Scripture. And not only does the law demand, it's never satisfied with anything less than complete and perfect obedience in every way. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to perform them, the Scriptures tell us. It doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is good. The law is beautiful, it's right, it's perfect, it's holy. It it reveals our sin, it points us to Jesus and subsequently teaches us how to live in such a way that we honor God. But the law is not gospel. The gospel is something different. The gospel is not a set of rules to follow. The gospel is not a way to live. The gospel is not love your neighbor. That's good, we should love our neighbor. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news, not that if we do certain things, we will be loved by God, approved by him, accepted, forgiven, whatever it is, but good news that because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has done, living for us, dying for us, being raised again from the dead, we can be loved, accepted, received, and forgiven by faith alone. Yeah, we can say salvation is by works. It's by works of another by works of Jesus, which we believe in, and that perfect record is then credited to us. Martin Luther said the worst thing a Bible teacher can ever do is confuse law and gospel, and I tend to agree. Now, here's why this matters. When the gospel is preached or taught in such a way that it becomes something we do, again, which is not really the gospel, The people who hear it will become deflated, exhausted, hopeless, joyless, overburdened, depressed, constantly trying to do enough to earn God's approval, but never really making it there. Or, of course, the other side of that is they'll become arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental, legalistic as they look around other people who don't keep the law the way they think they do. However, when the gospel is presented as good news, this beautiful announcement that God is restoring this whole world through the person and work of his son, restoring everything that's broken, including our broken relationships because of our own sin, because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place and his resurrection from the grave, we can be forgiven, we can be embraced, we can be loved, we can be accepted by faith in him. You know what that leads to? It leads to joy. It leads to freedom. It leads to worship. It leads to humility. It leads to loving other people around us. The law condemns. The gospel brings life. And the burden for every believer, especially for those who are going to uh, teach, those who would would be elders, is to clearly explain the difference. You see, even in the qualifications of an elder, there's good news for us this morning. And that is, you don't have to live with unending guilt any longer. You don't don't have to be separated from God. You don't have to worry about where you'll end up when you die. You can have certainty. You don't have to wonder how you stand with God at every moment. You don't have to worry, have I done enough? You can know for certain that God has forgiven you and received you by turning from your own self-reliance your own rebellion, and resting in the certainty of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I hope that that's 
the case for you this morning. That's what you're resting in. I hope, and if you, if you saw yourself in the answers of someone on that video, that's okay. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn and embrace Christ as Lord. Let's pray.